the ball. Am I off? I want you to stay standing while I preach all night. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I was telling Shane, I said, is this a new tradition? It's like Ezra and, you know, Luther, uh, Martin Luther, um, the, the reformer, he, they would stand while he would preach the whole time, you know. So we ought to bring, if we really want to go back to the Reformation, stand up and I'll preach, you know, all weekend and you'll be really tired on Sunday. But guys, it's so good to be with you uh, tonight and this weekend. I'm looking forward to having a good time with you and, and I like to have fun. And we're going to put the treat back in retreat and, and have, have a good time together. Um, there, there's nothing more exciting than God's Word. And to, to think that the God of all creation is speaking to us through this book is just absolutely mind-boggling to me. Um, I better not push that off the stage while I'm preaching. But isn't it amazing? Uh, don't, don't get over that. Don't, it, as we talk about the Reformation, don't take for granted that you can easily grab a Bible within reach and open it up and hear from God. Or turn it on and scroll through God's Word. Uh, whatever, whatever your preference is there. But what, what a tremendous privilege. And, that, and that's really what ministry in the church, that's what men's ministry is about. It is, is about opening up God's Word, hearing from God, and saying, Lord, help me be the man that you have called me to be. Uh, Lord, uh, instill this in my heart and in my life. And I pray that God would move this on us uh, this weekend in this way. We're going to uh, spend most of our time, all of our time, really, uh, until Sunday morning in the book of Titus. And I hope by the end of the week, end of the weekend, uh, it'll be more familiar to you. If it's not already, if you study this book before, a lot of this will be uh, a reminder to you. But we're going to delve in a little bit deeper in a couple of key passages and, and do that together. I do have a long history with Shane, and, and uh, your pastor is just a, has been a tremendous blessing to me. We actually go back before Master Seminary. We met at the University of Mobile. Shane, though I look a lot older than Shane, Shane's older than me, and I was a freshman and he was a senior in college, and, and, and in all seriousness, he really, uh, I, I was, a, we also came to faith in the same church and uh, growing up in Mobile, and, and uh, he had crossed the bay there. But uh, really, he took me under his wing uh, when I was in college. I was aimless, and there was a lot of things that I could go back and, and say, this was the, one of the first guys to say certain things to me. It was the first time I ever heard the name John MacArthur. Uh, was, you know, Shane I, uh, Shane, I worked in the post office on campus, and Shane did too. And he said, you ever heard of a guy named John MacArthur? No, and never knowing that that would just radically changed my life in a lot of ways and sent me across the United States and everything else. And so, so uh, wonderfully appreciate this brother and the ministry that we have with our one another's churches. We do feel like this is a sister church to us or for the sake of our weekend, a brother church to us. How about that? Um, and, and so we're just, uh, we're thankful that there's this witness here in, uh, in Atlanta, Woodstock in, in the area, and just thankful for your church, the blessing that it's been to our people over the years. And my dear brother, fellow elder, uh, Tim Keeter, I know he's had wonderful ministry over here over the years, and this is a first for us. We've been to, Tim and I have been to Mexico together and ministered. We've been to Russia together, and now we can check off Atlanta. Uh, so we've been a lot of places and a lot of experiences together, and, and this is on our bucket list. So now we're, we've done it. 
uh, almost. Um, we haven't done anything yet. So let's jump into the Word of God tonight, and we're going to be in the book of Titus. We're going to start in Titus chapter 2. Uh, we'll move around a little bit, and by the end of the weekend, like I said, even though we won't look at every verse of this book, the book will be more familiar to you, or, or you'll be reminded of certain things here. Uh, like they said about Tim, uh, about half of our population in Huntsville are some kind of engineer or another. So as you think about us, you can pray for me, number one, uh, as a minister, as the apostle to the engineers uh, in Huntsville. But, but I love these men. We, we have jokes about rocket scientists and all those kind of things, but I appreciate their their forward thinking, their, their detailed thinking in so many ways, and, and they challenge me in a lot of ways and sanctify me, and the Lord uses them in so many ways. Half our elder board is made up of engineers. So uh, again, pray for me as you think about me. But, but uh, so a lot of my illustrations and all kind of come back to those kind of things. And I, I understand there's probably a lot of uh, guys here that are involved in, if not in the engineering world, the coding world, computer coding. In fact, you know, it seems like, you know, babies come out today learning how to code um, and those kind of things. So th- this was a, a story that, that happened. This really happened a little bit earlier in the year. And this was across the pond in, in Great Britain. I think it was in Scotland. And uh, the, uh, the independent newspaper over there reported on this. And, and this is the story. And if I didn't have, go back and search this and confirm this with some other sources, I would have thought this is absolutely insane. But evidently this happened. Um, in an effort to clean up um, a man's, uh, this business owner's computer files, he entered a disastrous line of code. Maybe you've heard about this. The, the story goes like this. A man appears to have deleted his entire company with one mistaken piece of code. By accidentally telling his computer to delete everything in his servers, he has seemingly removed all trace of his company and the websites that he looks after for his customers. By the way, he hosts websites. That's his business. As he be- realized his mistake and he began to search around and, and ask what he should have probably done first, ask some experts, they informed him that he had just accidentally deleted the data of his company and its clients, and in so doing, had probably destroyed his entire company with just that one line of code. The problem command that he entered was RM-RF. If some of you know what that means, I know Tim does and others. It's a basic piece of code, but that code will delete everything it is told to uh, direct its attention toward. The RM, uh, according, they have different designations for this in Great Britain, but the basic idea is the same here. The RM tells the computer to remove. The R deletes everything within a given directory, and the F stands for force, telling the computer to ignore the usual warnings that come with deleting files, such as, are you sure you want to delete this? The code deleted everything on the computer, including his 1,500 customers' websites. The owner runs a web hosting company, uh, and he looks after servers and internet connections on which the files for websites are stored. I think he probably has new business today somewhere else. Normally, that code would wipe out all the specific parts of the computer that it was pointed at, but because of an error in the way it was written, the code didn't actually specify anywhere. And so it removed everything on the computer, and the man confirmed that the code had even deleted all the backups that he had taken in case of catastrophe. Because the drives that were backing up the computers were mounted to it, and the computer managed to wipe all those too. He says, 
In the understatement of all understatements, all servers got deleted and the off-site backups too because the remote storage was mounted just before the same, by the same script. What is the moral of the story? The moral of the story is this guy should not be in the computer business, right? But there's something else. If just one small, seemingly innocent, and seemingly innocuous part of our business, part of our world gets removed, actually it can bring the whole thing down. And often this happens in the church. You see, you knew I was going to turn it around at some point, right? If just one segment, just one line of code, let's call that line of code men, godly men, are just written off like a piece of faulty code, the Bible tells us that the church is spiritually unhealthy. Do you believe that? In other words, we can't be imbalanced at that level. We can't just say, well, the ladies are carrying it. The ladies are the backbone. Or maybe this particular group or that particular group. Or even just the older men or just the younger men. Or we're going to sit by and watch the youth kind of take everything on. It should not easily escape our notice that the first thing on the Apostle Paul's mind when it comes to the health of the church is the character of the men. Uh, Think about this. If you're not familiar with Titus, all you need to know, Titus chapter 1, disaster is taking place. Paul's writing to a a group of, seemingly a group of churches that are on the island, island of Crete, and they are being attacked seemingly from within by false teachers. And these false teachers are dividing the people ethnically, uh, probably between Jews and Gentiles. We don't know all the other ways that they're doing that. But Paul tells us very specifically in chapter 1, their disastrous teaching is is actually upsetting entire families. It's, It's getting down to the root of family relationships because of what is taking place in the church. This false teaching that's going on. And, and so kind of an overview of the book, and we'll come back to this throughout the weekend. Uh, what Paul seems to address in, uh, in coming against this false teaching is a number of things. What is needed for the church, chapter 1, is spiritual leadership. Uh, what is also needed, chapter 2, are spiritual relationships. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. And then what is also needed, and he gets into this in chapter 2, and then uh, in a fine way in chapter 2, in a pointed way in chapter 3, is the gospel. We need to be really clear about all three of those things. The, the understanding of the leadership of the church, a healthy leadership, a healthy uh, system, an understanding of relationships within the church, chapter 2, and a healthy gospel. You know what? If we have those three things in our church, we're going to be okay. We're going to be healthy. We're going to be all right. We're going to survive. We may not be good at other things, but if we have those things, we're going to be okay as a church. This is what Paul is addressing there. In the previous chapter, Paul shows that the false teachers are not fit for any good work. And, and it is a false ministry that is spiritually unstable. He says that in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. So what is Paul's answer to this monumental problem facing the church? Think of the problems facing the church today. It's false teaching. It's the encroachment of the culture on the church so that the church is becoming like the world rather than becoming holy and godly and the bride of Christ. It's a lot of things we can think of. We can think of the breakdown of leadership. We can think of the breakdown of healthy doctrine and of the gospel and so many other things. Paul's answer, at least kind of a, a central answer or one of the major three answers here, is to really examine our relationships in the church, the culture of discipleship that's taking place. And in this case, and in our context, it's the relationship of men with one another. 
What is described here in Titus 2 is that. It's a culture of discipleship, and it permeates the entirety of the church. I'm thankful for our brother Mark Dever, who's pastors in Washington, D.C. for the last 25 years or so, and he's written a book recently just called Discipling. It's a great little book. I don't know if you've seen that. It's one of those little blue nine-mark books. And it's an excellent just entry uh, level, but foundational and helpful to all of us uh, just on what discipleship is. And he says this in that little book, Discipling. He says, in the life of the church, spiritual growth and health should be the norm. It should be normal, normal to see people growing and maturing spiritually. Now, if you think about that, oftentimes we think these people over here are maturing and they're growing. They are on fire. No, they're not on fire. That's just normal Christianity. They're not on fire at all. They're just being Christians. When we're faithful to Scripture, that's Christianity 101. And we should not see that as just something extra added to the church. He goes on to say, In fact, spiritual growth is not optional for Christians, for the Christian. It indicates life. Things that are truly alive grow. Dead things don't. It's within the context of all these relationships that we find the richest soil for discipling relationships to supernaturally grow. And then he says, Our doctrine and life attain their shape within the doctrine and life of the community of the church. This is the culture of discipling. So what we're saying here this weekend, all that we're going to say is not something special, is not something extra. It is basic Christianity. It is Christianity 101. You need to be thinking about your relationship to other men in the church and how you, yes, you, are ministering to one another in the body of Christ. You're thinking, well, I don't know I have anything to offer. I hope you will change your mind and God will change your heart by the end of our weekend on that matter. A strong and healthy church is one that is sound in the faith. And so we ask Paul, the Apostle Paul, Paul, what does this look like? He says... And I'm summarizing here, paraphrasing. The measure of a church's faithfulness to the gospel will be evident in the lives that make up the body of Christ. How do we know that church is healthy? Look at the people, right? We learn that as children, right? This is the church. This is the steeple. Open it up and all the people. This is not the church. This is the church, right? Look at them. How, how do we know? It's not the beautiful building. It's not the outward exterior and all those things. We, we understand that. It's the people. It's the health of the spiritual relationships that are taking place in the church. That's something we have to think more about. We need to think more about that than the passing things of this world. We were singing about heaven tonight. We were singing about eternity with Christ. We were thinking about his return. We were thinking about how the gospel now impacts us in such a way that it is relating us to all of eternity with Christ. We need to think deeper than just, what am I going to eat? We need to think deeper than, you know, the troubles at work or the difficulties in my family. We need to think about how God is using all of those things in my life to strengthen this church. A strong and healthy church is one that is sound in the faith. So now that tonight, we just want to spend our our remaining few moments here looking at at some of chapter 2 and the specific focus on what Paul says about these relationships between men. In verses 1 through uh, 1 and 2, and then we're going to look uh, a little bit later, beginning in uh, verse 6 as well, Paul shows us a blueprint for building a healthy church that can faithfully stand amidst the changing tides of destructive teaching. And he will talk about 
men and women and, and slaves, workers, all of these things. But, but tonight we, we're going to focus on what he says to men, both older and younger here. And in order to do that, just like if you go to a doctor and you're starting to have some issues, blood pressure and all of that, maybe you're not there yet, you will be, Right? You have to establish a baseline, and that's what Paul does. And, and so if, if you're taking notes, number one is establishing health, and he does that in verse one. You have to start, establish a healthy baseline, and it must be established, and it begins with the teaching that Titus is passing on to the church. And the church, up until this point, in some way, where Titus is ministering, has been fed a poisonous meal from these false teachers, and Titus must sort through the damage by reestablishing a healthy congregation. And so Paul turns to this now. Chapter 1, he establishes the fact of these false teachers. What's needed at the beginning is healthy spiritual leadership in this church. It's very likely this is a, a young church. This is a church that hasn't been around very long. If you think about some of the differences between Titus and 1 Timothy, they have some very similar things to say, both pastoral epistles. But what is different is that as Paul writes to Timothy about elders, it's really about straightening out the elders that you have. Here in Titus, it's about appointing elders. Uh, they may not even have eldership and spiritual leadership, and so that needs to be established. So many scholars think that this might be a very young church and a very new church and so on. And so he looks to Titus to carry on this apostolic ministry. In verse 1, he says, But as for you... You teach, you speak what accords, what is in accordance with healthy teaching or sound doctrine. There's a massive disjunctive statement there at the beginning. But as for you, there's, he's drawing a line. He had, right before this, the last thing he said, what's the last thing he said in Paul's original letter? There were no verses, there were no chapter divisions. The last thing he said right before, but as for you, he said, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But you, but you gentlemen, don't, don't get wrapped around the axle of what's happening outside, but you, you, where, where are you going to be? What are you going to give an account for, for your family, for your relationships, for your testimony and so on? Paul's drawing a sharp contrast to what he just said in verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. You do what? You speak, you teach. Present active imperative here. Titus is not permitted to stay silent or ignore this matter while the church is suffering. You can't just sit by and watch your church die. And there were some, you can think of many illustrations of this. There were once upon a time many healthy churches all throughout the land and here in the United States, maybe over in Europe, maybe in other places of the world that are today museums. They're shops of curiosity. I, I, I'm a big fan of Richard Baxter. Right, right over my desk is a, a painting of his church in Kidderminster, England that my father-in-law painted for me. He's an artist when I graduated from seminary, and I've, I love Richard Baxter in so many ways. And you know what they use his church building for today? It's a knitting society, a knitting club. It was once a healthy church. It was once a place where the gospel was proclaimed. Don't, stand, don't sit by and watch your church die. You teach, you preach, you witness, you labor for the gospel. Don't be silent, Titus. And to do what? What is, he says, verse 1, what is fitting in accord, in accord 
uh, with sound doctrine. There's a negative implication here. You need, to, you need to uphold, teach, preach, live out what is in accord with sound doctrine. The negative implication is that there are some things not, fitted, not fitting to teach. There are some things that you shouldn't believe. I know that doesn't jive well with our culture in which we are situated in so many ways, but you need to understand that. This may be basic for some of us, but there's right and there's wrong. There's biblical and there's not. And we need to understand what that is. And the only way to get that is to know the book. Paul says that right out of the gate here. In, in fact, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but, but Paul lists a number of practical examples that he says are contrary to sound teaching. There are many things that are contrary to sound teaching. But you, Titus, here, you need to uphold what is in accordance with healthy teaching, or the, the NAS and the ESV says sound doctrine. It's here that his focus, Paul turns his focus to the character of the men and women in the church. This idea of healthy teaching, we're calling it healthy teaching, that's a literal understanding of what he says here, sound doctrine, healthy teaching, this is important to Paul. This is key. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 9, that the leaders of the church are to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that they will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine, same idea there, and to refute those who contradict. In chapter 1, verse 13, after he, he says some unkind but true things about the Cretans there, he says, chapter uh, 1, verse 13, this testimony is true for this reason Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. We'll see it down in verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in the faith. Same word again. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, same word, those of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine that conforms to godliness. Vital to grasp what Paul is saying here in verse 1. A faithful life is a fruit of sound teaching and belief. You want to be a faithful man of God? You bring your life continually, daily, hourly, under the authority of God's word. God does not speak with a forked tongue. He identifies himself so closely with his word that in 1 Timothy, he says that all scripture is theonoustos. It is all breathed out by God. You can't draw a division between who God is and what God says. They are so intertwined. It's wonderful. This is the healthy teaching. It's vital to grasp this. No one just stumbles into Christianity by accident. You don't just stumble into Christian maturity by accident. For Titus and the Church of Crete and for us, it is to be an active devotion to healthy teaching so that the church learns to grow in maturity. This is really basic, and and you might think we're just talking in bigger concepts here. What we're talking about is that every time you hear the word preached, every time you hear the word read, Every time you hear a faithful preacher on the radio or on a CD or a recording or you're reading a good book that is in accordance, you're saying, I believe this and I want to bring my life under this truth. Paul addresses five different groups that are Paul's practical answer to the threat of useless teaching that's being promulgated by these false teachers. 
Now, if false teachers are coming in, we might think, let's have an apologetics conference. Let's have a debate between them and between our leaders and those kind of things. You know where where Paul's mind goes after we establish healthy leadership, chapter 1? Paul's mind goes to the relationships of the men and women in the church. That's where he goes. Not, not a, not a, there's a place for those kind of things, possibly. But right on the heels of addressing these false, detestable, disobedient, worthless, false teachers, he says, let's talk about the older men, verse 2. The older women, verse 3. The younger women, verses 4 and 5. The younger men, verses 6 and 8. The slaves, the workers, verses 9 and 10, which is probably just about everybody in that society. The basis and motivation for what Paul describes here, we're going to see this in our first session tomorrow morning, is not, well, I guess we just need to muster this up. You know, we just need to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and just be a man, whatever that is, right? What enables everything that Paul will say here, and this is so important. In fact, this is key to everything we're going to say. What enables this, the basis and motivation for what Paul describes about these relationships is the grace of God. Right on the heels of this, verses 11 through 14, he talks about God's grace that enables these relationships. And we don't want to miss that. And so we're going to talk about God's grace and the gospel tomorrow morning. We're going to see how all of this is rooted in that. But you can see that in chapter 2. Now, beginning in verse 2, Paul addresses the various groups that make up the body of Christ. And, and, and we might note in passing that the false teachers, they, as we said, they divided people by ethnicity. That's false teaching. You Jews over here, you Gentiles over here. We, we've seen that even in our own history, in our own country. Peoples divided up by ethnicity or by some demographic or by some affinity group. Paul says it's false teaching. That's what was dividing the church. We need unity in the church. But unity must come through the gospel, must come through brothers standing together in this case on the gospel. So beginning in verse 2, Paul notes how this is the background, these false teachers dividing everyone by ethnicity, but Paul doesn't do that. Paul, this is countercultural to our day, Paul addresses all the people in the church according to who they actually are. Read into that a little bit, if you will. Not who they self-identify to be, but who they really are. And here's who you really are in the broader context of the church. You're either, wait for it, a male or female, older or younger. That's who you are. You're one of those. Paul just knows how to get right to it, doesn't he? Here's who you are. Now be who you are and who God has enabled you to be. And so this is what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at the older men and the younger women and number or older men and the younger men. If there's any women here, we'll, we can address them too. But uh, number two, engaging men. I, I love this. What, what do we, where do our minds often go? Just think about this. And you may not think about these things, but I want to challenge you to think about things, these things. If a church is dying or unhealthy or just needs a spark of life, where do our minds often go? What does the church need? It needs more youth. We just need the youth. They bring a, a level of energy, and they do. They bring a level of excitement, and they do. They bring a level of challenge, and they do. That's not where Paul's mind goes first. Where does he go first? This is here by, by way of importance. He goes first, verse 2, older men. Older men. 
Older men, verse 2, are to be sober, dignified, self-controlled, healthy in the faith, sound in the faith, in love and perseverance. Now, let's talk about these older men here. Who, who are the older men? It's a great question. In, in 2007, Charlie Munger, investment guru, he gave the commencement address at USC Law School, opening his speech by saying, well, no doubt many of you are wondering why the speaker is so old. Well, the answer is obvious. He hasn't died yet. Now, we think about that. That's often how old age is thought of and how it's valued. And we see that in our day. How is, how is old age Let me back up. You can tell a lot about a culture by how it treats the young and how it treats the very old. How does it treat the very young? It discards them, their burdens. Maybe we can even snuff them out before they even come out of the womb. We're also seeing that on the back end of things. We even had states vote in euthanasia laws uh, for senior citizens and others, and even not just senior citizens, but even for anyone who wants assisted suicide and so on. This is where we are as a culture. And you can tell a lot about a people, about how they value life on the front end and the back end and all points in between. Paul looks at the older men of the church and says, this is absolutely necessary. And being an old man is not imbibing Charlie Munger here, just waiting around to die. It's not burning ourselves out somewhere else, doing something in the world. For Paul, it is leading out in the church it is being exemplary in this sense being old doesn't mean or older doesn't mean sitting around waiting to die for paul it is the place to begin in reforming the church and bringing it back to a place of spiritual maturity (coughs) conventional wisdom says the youth group or the children's ministry is the measure of a healthy church and there's aspects of that we understand But it's actually, Paul says, the spiritual maturity of the older crowd. So what we're also not saying, and what Paul's not saying, it's not having a lot of old men in your church. Because just having gray hair on your head, or having no hair on your head, is not a sign of maturity. It just might be a sign that you're older. Paul is talking about a specific kind of older man. An older man who is godly. An older man who is walking with the Lord. Sober, dignified, self-control, sound in the faith, healthy in the faith. So what does Paul mean by older men? Give me an age. I want to know where I stand tonight. Well, the term is not technical for a particular age, but it has the the general idea of an older man. The the same word is used in Luke chapter 1 verse 18 where Zechariah referred to himself as an old man. So who's an old man? You get to refer to yourself whether you are or not. No. There was all kinds of ideas about what an old man was at that time, and even hundreds of years before Paul wrote this. Uh, Hippocrates wrote about the seven stages of life, and he used this same word to describe the sixth stage of life, which he said was, was ages 50 through 56. However, Paul is not using the term in that way. He's using it in a relative way. He's referring to the adult men of the church. Now, if we can get really spiritual and deep here for a moment, I was raised on the Muppets. Anyone else? Okay, I see that hand. Do you remember in the Muppets? Some of you remember that, you just don't want to admit it. Um, You remember the Muppets, and you remember they had the big theater, and then up there in the crow's nest were the what? The two old guys. Remember those? And those two old guys would, would, would sit up there, and, and let's, let's philosophically break that down here for a moment. Uh, these two old guys, 
They're physically above everyone. They were removed from everyone. And they just sit in judgment on everyone. They're just sitting up there. Their whole MO was just to crack jokes about everything that was going on. They were quite funny. But they were above everyone. They were removed from everyone. And they just sit there and they just tell jokes again and again. Now there's a philosophical ironic twist as I think about this. And I do think about these things. If you go back and think through the history of that show, no one knows they exist. They were merely content to sit on the sidelines and cracking jokes and passing judgment. In fact, I was thinking deeply and hard about this. I don't know that they ever interacted with any other character on that show. Now, the stereotype of the cynical old man who is always grumpy and complaining is a stereotype for a reason, right? He sits in judgment, he complains, he talks about what they are doing or what they're not doing, and he sits in judgment, he sits off on the sideline, but what Paul is calling for here is not a man who will sit off there and do that, but a man who is actively, thoughtfully, lovingly engaged with God's people. I promise I won't talk about the Muppets anymore this weekend. The good news is it doesn't have to be that way. Because if you're a Christian old man, the gospel changes everything. I've seen old men come to Christ. I've seen old men's lives changed by the gospel. And the Apostle Paul is fighting and laboring for the struggling church in Crete. And, and, and this is the first place he turns. He doesn't look to the youth group with all its unbounded energy. He, he doesn't throw everything in the lap of the elder leadership of the church. He starts with the older men. Think about that. The place for reformation and revival of spiritual health comes from a position of not just old in age, but spiritual maturity. That's what he's talking about here. This is counterintuitive to most of the things that are out there. Almost every book on church planning will talk about tapping into the youth and so on. As we said, there's a place for that. Youthfulness will grow numbers in a church, but spiritual maturity will grow strength and stability. That's what we want. We, we, we need to set up our churches in such a way that it will be faithful, not just this year, but for years and decades to come, no matter what happens around us. So the question is, how should the older men of the church engage in the body of Christ? Or, to say it another way, what is needed from these older, mature, godly men in the church? And the, Paul, the Apostle Paul gives us four characteristics here. If we can break down number two, engaging men, engaging them with what? Letter A, clear thinking. Clear thinking. Older men are to be temperate. Temperate. The word means sober, dignified, self-controlled, level-headed. Does that describe you? This is clear-mindedness. This is used to describe the elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Are you a clear thinker? Well, I'm not a very deep thinker. I don't like to read very much. You don't have to be that, but you need to be a clear thinker. You need to be sober-minded in relationship to the things of God. You need to be thinking clearly about your church and about your family and about how the other men around you are doing. We need to care and love for one another. Isn't that the essence of the Christian life? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor, the men around you, the people, as yourself. Clear thinking. B, thoughtful graciousness. Thoughtful graciousness. Older men, he says here, are to be dignified. 
When we think of dignified, we think of having on, you know, maybe some really nice clothes. And th- there's a sense of dignity that goes with that. And there's nothing more than a turn off than seeing a 65-year-old man trying to look 14, you know. It's just, it's embarrassing, right? That's not what Paul's talking about here. An older man is to be dignified. The meditations of his mind, the thoughts of his mind are not cheap and tawdry, but noble and moral as it relates to Christ. This goes right along with thinking, but not only in his thinking, as we said, clear thinking, but it makes its way out into his life. There's a thoughtful graciousness to how he carries himself. He's not gruff and rough. He's thoughtful and patient and careful and loving. Letter C, reasonable actions. Reasonable actions. And I would say reasonable in relationship to the Word of God. Older men are to be, he says, self-controlled. Some say, some translations say, sensible. This is a key term in this passage, in fact. It's used for the older men here, uh, the older women in verse 4, the younger women in verse 5, and the younger men in verse 6. It's used of everybody here. We all need... A healthy biblical dose of self-control. The word is very thoughtful here. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. And he ends that list with self-control. I love that he has the bookends of the fruit of the Spirit as love and self-control. Both need each other. And both are holding together all the other things. That's how I think of it. This is carefully, careful consideration and responsible actions. The words that Paul uses here reveals that he has been thinking carefully about growing old as a believer. These are not the words that we always associate with growing older. If you think, think about this, let's, let's think again a little bit philosophically and reflectively about what Paul is using here. Paul turns conventional thinking about growing older on its head. Now, I know some of you are young and you can't even imagine growing older, but, but here's what's happening around us in the world. And Paul turns that on its head. We think of growing older as confused thinking. We think of growing older as loss of dignity. We think of growing older as loss of control and independence. All of these are turned around into positive exhortations for godly men in this passage. It's quite interesting. Letter D, spiritually healthy. Older men must be sound, healthy, in faith, in love, in perseverance. Yes, older men are to love others. If you love Christ, this will be the fruit of your life. If you ever want to know or see where a church is, ask someone, what is a healthy church member? What is a healthy church member? Paul has clearly diagnosed a a spiritual cancer in chapter 1, and it's affecting the church in Crete. But if all one does is point out what's wrong with the church without also pointing to a biblical picture of health, then the church will be imbalanced. If you go to the doctor and there's disease in an organ, they will often, so that we can understand it, they will say, here's a picture of a healthy lung. Now here's a picture of yours. Here's a picture of a healthy colon. Now here's yours. We see that, and that's what Paul is doing here. Here's the bad picture in, verse, in, in chapter 1. Now here's a healthy picture. Here's what, by God's grace, we can attain. 
And you might be thinking, this, this idea of spiritual health, this is just do-goodism. This is moralistic self-perfection here that's going on. That's not at all what Paul is saying. And as I said, we're going to see in the morning how this is grounded. Paul's argument is deeply grounded in the gospel. But Paul has no problem saying, follow good, godly, biblical, moral examples. In fact, that's become a dirty word in some Christian circles today. But Paul himself says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Follow me, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Philippians, Philippians 3, verse 17, Brethren, brothers, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So don't only follow my example, follow anyone who's doing the same thing. We need this. These older men that are sound. There are three nouns used here, faith, love, perseverance. And, and, and they're, my students, you can diagram these. They're all parallel here, okay? What this means is that this is not multiple choice. I'm good at this one, but the godly man must be sound and healthy in each of these. We're striving for each of these by God's grace. Faith, this is trust in the promises of God. Love. Especially, I think Paul has here in mind, as it's exercised toward others. That's the need of the moment. That's the need of our day. We think of 1 John, who has so much to say about this. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God or from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. If you don't love, then you don't know God, he says. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. He says, faith, love, perseverance. We need older men who will be persevering what is this being able to bear up in the face of difficulty not give in to fads and culture or temptation the older believer is not to fade at the finish we need that we need men who will finish well and it's possible this is not a dream god's not asking us to do something that is impossible for us as his children as his sons there's an enduring quality about this man's walk with the Lord. It's, it's not perfection that is needed. He doesn't say he's sound in perfection. He says he's sound in perseverance. It's not perfection that is needed. It's men that will persevere and be steadfast. For our churches to be healthy, we, we need deep roots that go to gospel depths. And what that will mean is men, older men especially, leading the charge, strengthening those who are not there yet. Will you commit to that? There's nothing for me to do in this church. Are there people to disciple? Are there people to pray with? Are there needs to be met? And there's a lot to do, a lot to do. And I, I know some pastors and elders in this church that will be very happy to see you step up and help shoulder those responsibilities in the appropriate ways. These older men, Paul is saying, must hold the rope, be a source of spiritual strength, be a source of fortitude so that the church is not easily set adrift by the prevailing winds of error and compromise. I, I think of this, I, I like to grow a garden, though we're in a very serious drought right now, so my fall garden didn't quite happen this year. But back during the summer, and I remember this a couple years ago, I, I was pulling, at the, at the fall, I was pulling out the old tomato plants. And I love to cultivate the soil. And as the soil is cultivated, 
I let some lettuce plants from the earlier cool weather just kind of go, and then the tomatoes took off and did their thing. And what, what happened when I pulled those tomato plants out, uh, a couple in particular, they had roots that went out, I kid you not, eight feet in both directions, one plant. That's big. That's a lot. That's a healthy tomato plant. But as I pulled them up uh, to, for the fall, and there were some of those old lettuce plants still there lurking in the shadows in the cooler places, I noticed that as I pulled them up, those lettuce plants that have very shallow roots, they had actually wrapped their roots around those tomato plants, and they were actually receiving nourishment from those tomato plants. It's fascinating. I uh, I was even reading up on this, and evidently it's a common phenomenon. So what you have, think about it this way, is the younger, shallow, easily burned plants latching on to the older, stronger, more mature, deeper roots. Older men be faithful tomato plants. You go home, your wife say, what did he talk about? He told us to be faithful tomato plants. You heard it here. Let me give you one more, and then we'll... What about the young guys? Look down at verse 6. This is number 3. Exemplary sons. Exemplary sons. We love our sons. We love the young men of our churches, and we want to see them grow. We want to see them be faithful and flourish. We want to see them walk with the Lord. Likewise, verse 6, urge the young men... He just jumps right to the point, to be self-controlled. Young men are continually fed the lie that we all arrived here by chance and that moral responsibility is nothing more than a personal preference, which is why so many choose not to prefer responsibility at all. What happens in our society, our culture, and all those things if you tell a young man long enough, you're just a bundle of molecules, derived by chance, and you're no different from any other animal, and eventually, what will happen? Well, he'll start to believe it, and he'll live like it. There is a sheer hopelessness in embracing a godless perspective of your existence. God, by his grace, calls us to more. He calls us not to be a bundle of molecules and stems and cells, but he calls us to be God's sons, Young men, embrace this. Now, we've seen Paul give a list of attributes to the older men. He does this to the older women and younger ladies as well earlier on. But when he thinks of the young men of the church, he says one thing in particular. Guys, just have some self-control. He says something very similar in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Now, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. As young men who are believers, listen, young guys, you're responsible for your words. You might be told that you're not, but you are. You might see leaders in our nation not responsible for their words or acting like that. You might see people in society. You may have grown up in a, in a home where a father was not responsible and careful with his words and his thoughts and all of those things. But you're responsible for your words, for your actions, and for your responses. As soon as Paul gives the admonition for young men, it causes him to think of someone. And and I think here in verse 7, the next verse, he immediately turns his attention to Titus. Not leaving young men behind, but there's a real example right in front of him, and it's Titus. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified. 
Paul exhorts us to be men who live exemplary lives. If the desire is to be married, to find the right woman, be the right man first. Be God's man. Paul says here that the areas that he should be exemplary are your works, your theology, your life, your speech. Young man, have you thought about those things? What you do with your hands, how you give yourself to the body of Christ, how you give yourself to serving your family. If you think one day I will serve a family of my own, how we know that will, the, the, the way that we know how that will go then is how it's going now. Your theology, purity. He says to the young man in verse 7, with purity and doctrine. This is not just something for the old men to sit around in their musty old rooms and just talk theology. This is for you. Read good books. Study sound theology. Listen to your pastors and your leaders as they open up God's word to you. Young men, Paul says here in verses 6 and 7, they need to grow up. And what Paul shows us here is that growing up, what that means is not just making a name for yourself and getting a good job. Growing up is growing into spiritual maturity. As a young man, what should, give, what should you give your time and attention to? Paul says there's four areas where you live where your life as a believer must be exemplary. He says an example or a model of good deeds and works. What this means is your theology has a life. So as we encourage you and exhort you to study sound theology and to to listen to good teaching and all of those things, this is not become an armchair theologian. This is not just, uh, you know, debate with others online and all those kind of things. We're talking about a theology that lives and breathes and has life in the church. It's a theology that serves. It's a theology that loves even when no one's looking. Don't be a drain on the church, but be a source of good for God's people. You can do that by God's grace. He says, in your doctrine or your instructions, you must be sound, in sound words. The word refers to something that is not corrupted. What you believe and how you live are in agreement. Not perfection, but in agreement. This is why the ESV says, in your teaching, you show integrity. Integrity. How how do we find these things out? What if I do have... um, Some areas of my life as a young man that are corrupted or out of line with God's word. This is the beauty of God's word. What did he just show us? We need older men in our lives. We need godly, mature men in our lives. We need others who are discipling us. We need others who are helping us see the blind spots of our lives. What are those blind spots? We don't know. That's why they're called blind spots. And we need godly, mature men around us who will help us lovingly see those things and address them in our hearts and our lives. Just a final verse here. He talks about in your doctrine, in your dignity. Before we move on to verse 8, verse 7, in your dignity, this is a, there, there's a holy seriousness to your life. This, is, this doesn't mean that you're a killjoy or you never have fun, but you're serious about the things of God. This is not to suggest that you never laugh, that you never have times of lightheartedness. I love all of those things. Our home is full of laughter and, and full of those kind of joys. Isn't it, Will? Right? (laughs) But what this means is that our lives are not marked by frivolous silliness. Sarcasm, which is a common danger for young men. But dignity. 
and love for people. The fourth area that a young man must give his attention to, verse 8, this is the last verse we'll look at tonight, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. That preaches itself, doesn't it? Young men, your words must conform to the truth. They must be sound. It's a word we've seen already. It's a term used in medical contexts in the ancient world to describe something that is properly healthy. It's something that is in line, something that is orthodox, something that's not crooked or bent. How you speak is an indication of your heart and spiritual maturity. What does Jesus say? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This doesn't mean, brothers, we say, well, that's not very encouraging because I know the things that come out of my heart and out of my mouth. This doesn't mean that we never err with our words. We are all guilty. I I stand here telling you I can be guilty of being too sharp, dismissive, unkind, or hurtful. Right, Will? But what he's saying here is to be beyond reproach. It will mean that such things are not characteristic of you. And that you seek forgiveness. And you seek reconciliation. As young men, we must be quick to hear and slow to speak. Why? Paul says, into verse 8, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us, so that the church will not be a reproach, but will actually be a help, will actually be an encouragement to those that are lost in their sins. This is vital for us to see so that the message of the gospel is not obscured by our words and our actions. And brothers, if there's hope here, where it has been, let's, let's close those accounts. If we have been harsh, if we have been grumbling and complaining, if we have been lack of care with our words, unloving and so on with our words, let's close those accounts, let's close those loopholes, let's ask for forgiveness, let's seek repentance, all of those things, and let's continually press forward in all of that. Everything Paul says here is out of step with what you're going to hear around you. It's out of step with our culture, it's out of step even with what's taught in some churches today, and that's so sad. But our goal here is not to point fingers at the culture and leaders and even other churches. It's to bring our lives tonight under the weight and the joy and the help and the strength of God's word and say, Lord, this is your word. Help me. Help me. If you drink from the fountain of the world's wisdom, the living water of Scripture will taste bitter to you. This is not an arbitrary teaching that Paul gives here. Paul wonderfully takes us further and deeper into this, and we're going to do this tomorrow morning. What Paul is saying here, let me just say this one last thing. Titus and all young men, all older men, this is not the way to belief in the gospel This is the ongoing fruit of the gospel. So what Paul is not saying, it's very clear that you understand this. As much as you understand your relationship to tomato plants, you also need to understand this. Paul is not saying, be good and good luck. He's not saying, be be a good old man, be a good young man. What he describes here is the fruit of the gospel. 
And we're going to see how he connects all of that in the morning. By God's grace, we'll be here in the morning. And we're going to look at some more here in chapter 2 and then into chapter 3. He will say in chapter 3, he saved us not on the basis of works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And so all of this we say tonight, God, only by your mercy can I be what you have called me to be. That's our prayer for us tonight. Let us renew our hearts under the strength, the authority, and the encouragement of God's word. Do not hear this as a discouraging word. Hear this as a sanctifying reminder that God loves you and God has set his faith, God has set his his love upon you so that your faith will be rooted in him as a young man, as an older man. Would you pray with me?